Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I think if there's one thing that I wish I'd learned earlier was just don't try so hard. Relax, (laughs) open up. Um, You don't need to be as tight and focused as you are and you'll probably still get the same gains. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Lee Craigie. Lee is a bit of a legend in the mountain biking world. She's a bike adventurer, outdoor therapist, founder and director of the Adventure Syndicate, and for a time she was Scotland's Active Nation Commissioner. This conversation is one of those ones where I just lost myself in it. Lee and I cover a huge variety of topics in this conversation, from her championing winning mountain bike career to working with young people in the outdoors, the pros and cons of winning, happiness, activism, family, community, and how she now finds balance by having changed her goals and motivations. I've had Lee on the to podcast list for years, so I'm very proud to finally be able to air this chat. Before we begin, I'd like to talk to you about Sidetrack magazine, our sister publication. Sidetrack is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organization working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help, and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Lee Craigie. So thanks very much for doing this. I think the logical place to start is obviously the start. If you could... um, begin I guess by introducing yourself tell me who you are and what you do whatever that means to you okay so I am Lee Craigie and actually what I do has changed so much in the last four or five years I I feel like I I don't do any one thing but the thing that has been woven through my life I suppose is um, using a bike to get into wild places and um more latterly that has meant uh, racing very long distances um self-supported racing through some pretty remote places but the bike has hasn't always been about racing for me I did race um traditionally for 10 years cross-country mountain bike racing as the, the British mountain bike champion um and that was a huge focus but before that bikes and um, being physical, it was just about access to, to wild places. It was it was autonomy of travel. It was freedom and excitement and curiosity about the world out there and about what was going on in my body. You know, in my relationship with 
with the outdoors and, and with myself. Um, and bikes have just been a great vehicle to to allow me to do that, to explore that. And that sort of become um, my life, really, trying to introduce that to other people through a degree in outdoor education and child and adolescent psychotherapy and working for the Scottish Government as the Active Nation Commissioner. All of that has always been as a way to um, ensure that more people have got access to wild green places in order to experience the, the health um, benefits of, of being outdoors and active. Yeah, and I think maybe I'm going to sort of do this in reverse to the way that I normally would because that the, you know, the first half is really interesting, but the second half I think is really unique and interesting. And you, know, you mentioned that bikes, well, you didn't say it verbatim, but bikes have essentially like defined a lot of what you've done. They've been a huge focus for you. How do you go from being, you know, British champion to suddenly working in mental health, encouraging other people to get outdoors, working for the Scottish government? Like that's a radical transition. Mm. Yeah, it was a bit of a curveball. <laughs> well, actually, the working therapeutically with young people and the elite level racing do actually sit quite nicely hand in hand. Um, somebody asked me recently, oh, you must have learned so much in your elite level racing career and taken that into youth work and and I tell them no it was absolutely the other way around those boys that I was working those young men who um, were being excluded from school because they couldn't sit still like they, they were fidgeting and they were antsy and they were angry and they wanted to be out there doing and being and breathing and feeling I got that I totally understood where they were coming from um, and I think actually those young men have got I've got something to teach us all, you know, in this world where we're becoming increasingly estranged from, from nature and from our own bodies. Let's listen to those ADHD sufferers that are saying, let me get out into the hills. So actually, they really, really helped me, those kids. They were, they were my grounding force. So when I was like racing internationally and every weekend I was flying to a new country, it was like so self absorbed I was so self-absorbed I was so focused on my own stuff I had this one very narrow quite arbitrary goal <laughs> to be the first around a, a lapse of a mountain bike course and over a line I mean that is just that is so it's so arbitrary when then you're going back to your day job and you're working with these kids who have been like excluded from school or they're living in a they're living in a care home so they helped me keep that balance keep that grounding keep the joy for mountain biking you can't not have fun on a mountain bike if you go out with a kid who's whooping and hollering in the woods. Whereas if I was just racing, I would have completely lost the joy because I would have been too busy staring at my heart rate monitor. And that was, you know, that was never what it was supposed to be about for me. So actually those two things went quite well together. The Scottish government stuff, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was a proper curveball, like suddenly being... Um, brought in as a consultant, I guess, to to talk about ways to make the Scottish nation healthier and happier. And oh, suddenly I was like thrown into this bureaucratic, um, quite sort of stagnant way of decision making where, you know, before if you're on the hill, you're doing, you, you know, you're riding or you're walking or you're running, everything's really immediate and fluent and, and you're you're in charge and you can make changes really quickly. And then I was involved in this huge 
just this huge governmental bureaucratic process where nothing seemed to be changing. Everyone was just too busy talking about change and I really struggled with it. Um, but it was such a privilege as well to be in that position, like to be able to inform policy and to have these conversations with people and to make tiny changes. Um, it was quite a good lesson and letting go of my ego and being like, you're just, you know, you're not going to change the world here. You just need to chip away at the tiny bits that you can make a difference in. Um, that said, I'm glad I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. I am done. How did it come about? <laughs> I was uh, approached by um, uh, some of the uh, delivery partners that deliver active travel um, stuff, active travel projects in Scotland. And they said the Scottish government are uh, trying this post, this active nation commissioner post, so a, a post that works hand in hand with Transport Scotland within government but remains separate of government. And they were all really keen that it was somebody in that role who wasn't a civil servant, wasn't from a political background, wasn't like entrenched in the systems already. They wanted somebody with uh, a, a fresher outlook, perhaps someone that came from a different world, um, someone that was focused on the health benefits and the joy of cycling rather than, you know, the data that, it, that improving cycling levels could, could bring to the, the population's health. Um, and the fact that I was a woman probably helped as well. Like I think, I think having another white um, middle-aged man in those positions making decisions um, for how women could be more active because it is women and teenage girls that who's who drop off. You know, they they're not as active as as men and boys. So I think for all those reasons, I was I was asked to apply, and I wasn't sure at the time that that is the direction that I wanted to go in. Um, but throughout the process. I did apply and then throughout the process I was like actually this is such a unique opportunity to work with um, a government that I really believe in you know I, I don't believe in all in all um, big bureaucratic bodies but the Scottish government its heart is in the right place you know it's, it's really focused on social policy and um, thinking about the bigger picture and and trying to create healthier happy more fair communities and I thought, well, with that as a strap line, I can see how my agenda fits into that. I can see how important it is that we try and make the outdoors more accessible to more people. And so that is why I took it on. I mean, it's again, this is such an understated way of phrasing, but it's such a monster challenge that probably feels like, you know, uncompletable in a sense, like just to, to go in and try and operate at that level and convince those people to make radical changes, but then to fix the, the outdoor activities of an entire nation. Mm. Um, how did you find it? <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was, it is, it is an impossible task and I was put in quite a difficult position, I think. Um, and over, so when I first started, I had this agenda, just, you know, make, Make the, nail, make the nation more active. Like, right, I'm one person, two days a week. Um, but I was plugged into lots of different departments within government and I thought, okay, well, this is the strength of it. Um, we can speak to transport, we can speak to the environment, we can speak to health, we can speak to social inequalities, we can speak to education. We can even speak to the economy, you know, 
being more active benefits all of these different government departments. So I thought, great, this is going to be easy. But that was actually what made it hard. <laughs> because all of these different departments are like, oh, yeah, the health and well-being of a, of a country. Oh, that's their job. Oh, no, no, that's not our job. Speak to transport. Oh, no, that's not transport's job. Speak to, speak to health, speak to education. And so you're just, you're one little pawn in this whole thing, trying to join up this huge, complex government agenda. And they've all got their own specific focuses. And yet it's, it just was impossible to bring everybody together. And that was what I wish I could have done better. Bring people together to talk about joined up solutions to this massive problem, not just in Scotland, but um, our physical inactivity, our estrangement from nature and our disproportionate access to the outdoors, I think, is killing us. Um, and it needs to, and our planet, and it needs to, it needs to change. But, and it's not like there's not good people out there trying to make that change. It's just that we're not actually speaking to each other. Um, and we're, you know, we're, we're too focused on our one little bit. We need to be like, oh, we're all trying to do the same thing. Let's talk about how we can do this systemically. Um, but I was naive. <laughs> I didn't realise just how difficult a task that would be. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it gets into a bigger conversation, which probably isn't today, but it just drives me wild because, you know, exactly what you're talking about is completely true. Like there's all these incredible people. I think about it when it comes to like land use in Britain and this like this complete impasse between farmers, agriculture and, and rewilding. And it's like, hang on a second. You know, I've read all of these different books by all these different people. And actually what you're all saying is we need to create a better way of using land to benefit nature and humanity. Now, you have slightly different ideas of how that plays out, but you're actually speaking about exactly the same thing. Mm. Like, do you not get you like you love nature, you want to create a better planet for humans, you, you want the same thing. Uh -huh. Why are you shouting at each other and trying to belittle each other all the time? Anyway, it drives me uh -huh. insane. I know, and getting um, hung up on semantics and, and focusing in on... And that is, what, that is what happens when people are scared, isn't it? They're, they see their, their um, narratives, their way of framing the world, tilting on, on their axis and someone coming in and saying, I know you've always done it this way, but actually this way is much better. And that just shakes your foundation. And if you've lived a life of farming in a particular way, then somebody coming in with a radical apparently radical new way of doing things is going to it's going to rock your world and you're going to want to defend it and it's that defense that gets us into so much trouble not just in terms of rewilding or health or in physical inactivity but you know all the trouble in the world comes from people meeting other stuff with resistance when people have got this idea of how things should be um, this is the way they've always been done and i'm hanging on to this for dear life or my world doesn't make sense Instead of being open to understanding other people's points of views, we meet it. We meet it with this force of will, this barrier, and that, and it's just those barriers meeting off each other that that just cause an implosion. Because you're absolutely right. There's always threads of commonality in, in every conflict. There's, you can always find those threads of commonality. But I don't know. We're just we're scared of changing our minds. I think, aren't we? And, and being open to a different way of thinking and being. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, you mentioned you mentioned ego. I think so much of this comes down to ego and that willingness to sit down and say, I have listened to you and you have changed my mind a little bit. Mm. Like that's, you know, it's seemingly an impossible thing for lots of people to say. And I think that's such a shame. This idea yeah. that you can be wrong, you can change your mind. That's possible and doable. Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that, that that is the root that is how actually I got a little bit disheartened with the whole political stuff. I was just like, oh, here's a government that's trying to do good stuff. But then actually when you hear the how they listen to each other, how they speak to each other, it's worse than kids in a playground. You know, you're just like, hang on, you guys are grown up and you're supposed to be running our country. <laughs> listen to each other, apologize, change your mind, have debate. But that's not allowed in politics. Debate means weakness. If you're willing to have your mind changed, then it means that you don't have a rod of iron to begin with. And what sort of a leader is that? And we need to be changing. We need to be changing yeah. our political system. We need to be changing all sorts of all sorts of things so that we can have these debates, because that is the only way that consensus is reached and and innovation happens isn't it yeah i mean i'll change the subject in a minute because we're going down a rabbit hole but i have this wild fantasy of one day watching like a session in the house of commons where somebody on one side listens to the other and goes you know that was a really good point actually and i think that you guys are actually this particular thing like there's lots i disagree with you on but this particular thing you're nailing it like you've got this i approve Mm. Like, wouldn't that ever been said in that room? I don't know. Wow, wouldn't that be great? Uh, and just to make that point, you know, we should maybe we set up the House of Commons, set up something, and and have that just stage that yeah. as an example, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, you're right. We are yeah. going down a rabbit hole, but I think you're. Do you know what, Matt? I think you're right. <laughs> you made a really good point. Thank you. I need to be right, so I'm glad that I'm right. You're right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, so I think, I mean, lots of what we're speaking to now, actually, you know, when you you said earlier, I just used to stare at my heart rate monitor and I think I'm really interested in this transition. I don't know if you've always been, you know, a professional cyclist who was fiercely competitive and that's something we'll talk about later, that idea of fierce competition, but also, you know, socially minded, philosophically minded, politically minded, or whether there was a moment where you thought actually there is more to my life than staring at a heart rate monitor and pedaling hard. Mm. Yeah, no, I've I've never been particularly interested in staring at heart rate monitors and pedaling hard. <laughs> that came, that all sort of came about as a bit of a a mistake, actually. Um, I've never been into data and you know training plans and. Um, yeah, I've never, I've never been into, you, you know, the whole eating for success and all of that stuff that you have to do. You have to be very, very specific and precise if you're going to get to that level or so so we're told. Um, and so it came as a bit of a shock to me that this was the person I was becoming, I suppose. You know, I've always just played in the outdoors. I, I don't, I'd lived a life of doing all sorts of different stuff in the outdoors climbing and kayaking and skiing and hill walking and and just just being in the hills it didn't really matter what it was that I was doing and then quite by accident I entered a race near where I was living in in Inverness and and I did really well in it and then I got caught up in this conveyor of getting better and better and better at this thing and I got picked up by 
coaches who had a set idea of how you get better at this thing. And uh, and I thought, yeah, you've got the expertise, so we'll go with this. Because I was curious and I wanted to know just how much better I could get at this thing. And so I did what they said and I sort of surprised myself for someone that doesn't like structure and loves the freedom to be able to explore and grow and, and go off topic and um, I actually quite enjoyed the structure of hard training. I would wake up every day and I had, uh, well, this is what I'm doing today. I've got this structure and all I need to do is ride my bike and eat this food and recover from it and go again the next day. And it was simple. And it was, and, and, I, and it was satisfying. You know, I was noticing my body getting stronger and fitter and I was winning races and it was, it was exciting and it was, I felt in control. And then an interesting thing happened where I'd lived that life for a certain amount of time and I hadn't noticed that I was becoming more blinkered. I was becoming more um, more focused on just what I needed. I was struggling more to look up and see the bigger picture. Um, I would go into the hills on my mountain bike, but I'd be too busy, like I say, looking at my heart rate monitor rather than looking around. Um, and I was like, this isn't me and my relationships are are suffering here and and I'm feeling a bit uptight and anxious and worried about what I'm eating. I never used to worry about what I was eating and looking at numbers and you know this it, it, it didn't it, I was losing the joy I was losing the joy of it and yet at the same time the structure and the getting better and the excitement of the racing was kind of keeping me hooked and so I decided to draw a line under it. I looked forward to a point in time. I was like, okay, this is hard. And I can feel the joy of riding my bike and being in the hill seeping out. I need to draw a line under it in the future somewhere and aim for that point and put everything into that and do it justice and end it well. And then go back to using bikes or moving my, using my body in the way that it was intended. You know, it's, a, it's supposed to be a joyful thing. Um, and that's what I did. I was like, right, I'm going to get to the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow. That's going to be my last ever cross-country mountain bike race. And at the end of that race, I did put the heart rate monitor in the bin at the Athletes' Village. <laughs> and I've never used one since. I was <laughs> done. <laughs> put it in the bin, ceremony, like absolutely threw it in the bin. And then felt a bit guilty about it, so took it out later and gave it to the team mechanic. <laughs> but the ceremony was there. <laughs> It felt like a really important thing to do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, and I asked this next question with kindness, but like, if you realised you were losing, you kind of your sight of the bigger picture, losing your way as a person a little bit, mm. why not just kill it at that point? Why not just say I'm done now? Why did you need to go to the Commonwealth Games and finish things off? Mm. That's a really good question. And I think there's something about um, ending something well. For for me, like for my ego, for my sense of self, and um, I just feel like I worked so hard to get to this point. Um, what I would I would need to have been a much much bigger, braver, um, more. A secure person to be able just to drop it there and not and you know and, and never and always always wonder how how well that race might have gone how well I could have done um 
yeah, I felt like I needed something big and grand to hang it off. And that was, I'm sure that was just my my ego talking. Um, and I'm really glad that I ended it that way. It was a fantastic couple of weeks of my life. It was a brilliant race. Um, and now I've got those those memories to, to look back on and be like, yeah, I, I did that. And um, I committed wholeheartedly to that process. And now when I look at pictures of myself on that day, um, I, I remember not just the stress and the struggles, but I remember actually what it gave me as well. I remember those feelings of absolute euphoria um, racing just racing on a course that I know really well and that my body was functioning and that my bite was working and I could hear the crowd and I've got all of that now um, and selfish as it was to get to that point um, hopefully I've used some of that platform to um, to give something back. Yeah you've used that word a couple of times that selfish word and I think you know some people who I've spoken to on this podcast they never use that word despite their pursuits being and I'm going to change the change the semantics but like wholly of self journeys of self for self. You've used that word a few times and I'm interested in your relationship with serving and helping others and serving and helping yourself and your own ambitions is that something you find is in conflict? I think it used to be I think uh, I think when I was racing full time, like the life of a elite level athlete that is going through is being picked up by the national governing body of her sport to to race um, all over the world. That is inherently in the macro and the micro picture a very self centered thing to do, um, and you know I was I was flying all over the world you know my carbon footprint was absolutely gargantuan uh, if I hadn't been working with those boys I would have really questioned like what is the point in life here I'm racing to the other side of the world to race in laps around a muddy field looking at some spectacular mountains in the distance and then I'm being ushered back to my hotel room to rest and recuperate. You know, I'm, I'm being treated like a prize horse here and I'm part of society. I'm part of something much, much bigger, surely, than this. Um, and a lot of people say, yeah, but, you know, that stuff's inspirational. That Our kids, they look to elite level athletes and they think, you know, I could be that. I could do that too. And I think, yeah, absolutely. It's an amazing thing to do, to encourage your children to do. But at the same time, you know, don't set your values on it because it's a very, um, it's a very uncomfortable place to form a set of values, I think, in the world of elite level sports. It's not, it's not a very healthy place to balance your entire self-worth. And that is what I guess I could see happening. Um, a lot of the time whether if somebody didn't win a race then they felt like the world was ending rather than thinking okay I didn't win that race but you know the, the world is still going round and it's not the most important thing in the in the entire universe so yeah I, why is that unhealthy you know basing elite basing your value system and sense of self-worth of elite level sport I tell you what I've got a little reading from my book that speaks to just that shall I absolutely I'd love that so it's always been interesting to me that elite sport is held in such high regard when if you scratch below the very impressive surface 
what often gets revealed are obsessive compulsive disorders, fanaticism, selfishness and egotistical ambition. We're taught to admire sports people and as children to emulate them. But the world of sport is an extreme and uncompromising place for a young person to form a set of values. Achieving success in life is often associated with having money, fame or influence. But imagine a world where kindness and patience are valued over any other attributes traditionally associated with success. So I guess the world of sport, incredible as it is, but competitive sport is about getting your elbows out, putting your blinkers on and racing as hard as you can to the finish line ahead of other people. <laughs> it's, about, it's about being better than other people, about beating other people, about being, that's what traditional success is supposed to look like. It's about winning. Um, for me, I think that was always difficult because I kind of knew in my heart that winning, like really succeeding, is about collaboration and cooperation and caring for one another. And how could I reconcile that belief with getting my elbows out every Sunday and racing for a line and, and, and beating people over a line? And I think what was so interesting was this, that I could be both that I could have both of these things going on at the same time because there's something so pure and satisfying and there is a healthiness to, we're in a race, I'm going to beat you, you know, I'm going to go as fast as I can, I'm going to go eyeballs out and we'll get to the finish line and we'll just see who wins. You know, there's something lovely about that. And But what happens is if it is, if you put a value on, the person or on that other person who you're competing against way of being I'm going to beat you and that makes me a better person than you that's where it gets dangerous and so by looking at our shadow our shadow self where we all want to be recognized and we all want to be we all want to achieve something we want to you know win in a traditional sense sometimes it makes us feel good doesn't it um by by saying, well, I don't ever want that for myself. Other people can have it all. It's not about me. Um, you know, everybody else can win and I'll just sit here at the bottom of the heap. That's not healthy. But nor is, I am better than everybody else and I am racing for this line and nobody is going to get in my way. There needs to be an acknowledgement of this, this n need to strive and to win and to achieve but keep it balanced in this healthy way where it's not the be all and the end all. It can be fun and it can be about the process and about the journey and about actually how you feel while you're racing for that line. These are the important things now. Um, it's not actually about that outcome. It's not about where you place on a leaderboard or if you stand on a podium or not. It's about the process of your relationship with your body and with the world and with other people in getting, in, in, and putting yourself out there in these risky situations or these situations where you're not sure of the outcome. Um, that's the value in it now for me. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. 
if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, it's a, yeah, a great little reading and it makes total sense to me. And I think like, I've got this stupid analogy wearing around my head, which is like, it might not work, but it's, it just feels like, you know, family board games, right? To strip it right back to something basic that most people can understand. This idea of like, we've all played those games where somebody's just out to win and it, they just make it not fun. And then other people don't even want to be sat at the table because they hate <laughs> playing board games. But then you've actually got the other people who are thinking like, I'm going to try to win now because that feels nice and that's the purpose of this exercise. But actually, I want to spend time with you sat at this table doing this thing, you know, taking too long on my turn because we're chatting and all of that stuff. It just feels like there's all these different mentalities of people. But I mean, I suppose the point of my analogy and silly metaphor is, you know, competing for a sense of community and hoping you beat some of your closest friends, but not minding if they beat you. That sounds healthy. Mm. That sounds fun. I can, I'm mm. not a competitive person in sport, but I can understand that appeal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it gives you a focus. And, and like your board game analogy, it gives you a reason to sit around the table and to have the opportunity to have those conversations, whether they come or they don't. Um, yeah, I think it's a brilliant analogy. In fact, you're reminding me of a time in a youth hostel in Isla recently where we got Monopoly out. I've not played Monopoly for years. I think it's... It's, you know, it's the worst of humanity, this capitalist <laughs> game. Um, and, I, and I experimented with um, uh, playing with a different set of values. I was like, right, I am going to practice patience and kindness in this game and I am just going to give everything away and I'm just going to see what happens. It was really interesting. It was so interesting. So I didn't win. <laughs> <laughs> but people were treating me differently to the person who was out to like get all the hotels on Mayfair. You know, they were like, "Okay, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a break." I, you know, and and it was, it was. I had a much nicer experience playing that game than I've ever had it before. Um, ultimately, didn't make all the money, but actually, who cares? <laughs> who cares? Do you feel like? I mean, earlier you said, you know everything suffered when you were competing at that level and I think you mentioned you know lifestyle relationships all of that stuff I don't want to pry or probe too much but like what was the negative impact on your life outside of competing on the bike Mm. so I guess I um I kind of been tons of fun when I was, and this wasn't always the case, like I did have some downtime and I did try and structure in time where I could just relax and not think about racing. But, you know, my my partner um, at the time and I used to do loads of different stuff together. We used to go into the hills and and with no agenda, you know, there wasn't ever, a, there, didn't, there didn't have to be a, a training session involved in what it was that we did. And it could be diverse and we could travel and we could go to parties and, you know, we could um, experiment with food and um, I didn't have to get nine hours sleep a night and uh, we weren't always having to focus on me being in a certain place in the country on a Sunday in order to, to race and driving long distances. And I suppose little by little, 
um, we fell into this lifestyle of making sure that whatever decisions were made, it was going to positively impact my racing. And so when someone was, was saying, you know, there's this party or there's this hill or there's this gathering or there's this meal, I would have this internal voice that would be like, um, is this going to make me go faster on a bike? And if the answer was no, then I didn't want to do it. <laughs> and how is that a way to live a balanced, healthy life, you know? Uh, so, yeah, it was, I guess it was those, it was those sacrifices that were made. And my partner was amazing. She was so supportive and so helpful. I wasn't earning very much money at the time. Um, and she held that and she came to races with me and she just lived her own life and found other people to do the stuff that we used to do together. And at the whole time I was, was like watching this other life happening out there thinking, oh, that'd be quite nice. Quite like to do a bit more of that. But um, but yeah, I, I was also getting quite a lot personally out of the way that I was living my life then that it felt like the right thing to do to commit to this other process. Who knows if I made the right decision back then? Uh, I think ultimately I'm I'm happy that I explored that to its fullest degree. But who knows what life would have been like if I hadn't? Yeah, well, shoulda, woulda, coulda, and all of that stuff. I definitely have my own versions of that, and I think we all do. Um, we all and do, it, you know. I, I, yeah, I mean, who am I to comment on it? But like, it's just from the way you're phrasing it now. You know, it sounds like you're in a sort of happier, peaceful place with it now. Um, mm. but I think that that word sacrifice is a really interesting one you know you've mentioned it a couple of times again and just now and I think we something speaking to something you said earlier we sort of celebrate these sacrifices like everything about self-help when it comes to elite performance and things is centered on you know you sacrifice this and you sacrifice that and that's going to make you better and harder and stronger and better the best but actually mm. should we celebrate that sort of sacrifice you know I suppose at the other end we've just got this like indulgence which is dangerous in itself mm. but is sacrificing so much actually healthy or worth it yeah I think if there's one thing that I wish I'd learned earlier <laughs> in, in, in my racing career and in life was just don't try so hard relax <laughs> open up um you don't need to be as tight and focused as you are and you'll probably still get the same gains. You know, if I could just, if I could have just kept more perspective and that's what these working with these boys did and going into the hills always does. It gives me perspective. You know, I'm a speck in a much, much bigger picture. But if I'd kept more of that perspective, I think, um, understood that, actually in the bigger scheme of things it doesn't matter so much instead of getting so focused on my stuff I think I would have probably been happier and you know what I think I would have gone faster I think I would have actually been a better athlete so yeah who knows who knows I mean all of this speaks to and obviously you know you've mentioned the book and you've read from the book which is um a lovely thing to have done that I don't think we do enough of on this podcast but um you know you wrote a book about all of this and I think this whole idea of like other ways to win um, is a fascinating concept and I won't pretend I've read it yet. I haven't, but um, I'd love to. It sounds like, you know, totally up my street. And then um, I guess I'd love to start on the subject of the book by asking you 
what inspired you to write it and why you felt like it needed writing down? Mm. We st- we've had a great conversation that I think really uh, summarises exactly what, what it's for. Um, I guess towards the end of my racing days, I started thinking, oh, okay, maybe there is a way to practice this, this kindness, this patience, like bring that into a world where on the face of it, it doesn't really belong. Um, and then, you know, I was involved in politics. I've been involved in education and I've, I've seen people striving and trying to achieve and, you know, attainment in education and debate in politics and racing for that line in sport. And I've thought, I think we're getting it wrong. I think we're focusing on the wrong stuff. Sure, we need we need to pass exams and we need to win debates and we need to win at races in order to, you know, have, have that goal and have something to focus towards and have that structure. But the way that we're going about it, I think, feels unhealthy. I think we need to be treating each other with much more respect and opening ourselves up to different ways of thinking and being and focusing on collaboration and cooperation um, if we're going to be healthier, happier and more sustainable ultimately. And so I thought, well, let's take the metaphor of sport or adventure and turn it into a... uh, um, uh, uh, I guess an interrogation of success, like what success looks like, what winning looks like, and just try and flip it a bit and see if maybe there's another way that we might uh, scrabble about to define it um, that actually serves us, because I'm not sure that our current definitions, the way society views success and winning at the moment, particularly serves us. So that's what I try to do. But usually by using stories of adventure because that always uh, well that's my thing that's my way of communicating so why not yeah and I think I'm guessing we've touched on a lot of the kind of almost conclusions of it in this conversation so far but I'd really love to know what are the top line answers to the question you know what are the other ways to win what does success look like to you yeah I think more and more success to me looks like contentment so when I was racing I thought success was you know that lovely feeling that you get when you win something or you do something really really well and you can live in that kind of that bubble of uh, euphoria for you know days at a time but you know you, you can't live there forever you can't even when I became the British champion, I was always like, oh, yeah, but there's, you know, winning World Cups. And then, you know, even if I was anywhere good enough to win a World Cup, I know that the girls that were winning World Cups were like, yeah, but there's the World Championship. And even if you were the World Champion, you were still thinking, but can I sustain it? Can I stay at this level? There's someone biting my heels. So you were never, ever going to feel content. You were never going to be able just to be like... I'm okay, the world's okay, everything is moving okay and I'm part of something much, much bigger. That, I think, is, is the key to, um, to, to real, true success. It's if it's sustainable, if it's within you and it's not dependent on a set of circumstances that are out with your control. 
Um, and that is just a decision that you make every single day, isn't it? This is how I'm going to be today. And maybe I'll get it wrong tomorrow, but this is how I'm going to be today. And the it, euphoria that you get from winning a race that keeps you sailing for a couple of days, you don't get that in the same way. But it's it's a steady trickling of happiness, deep joy, groundedness, a, a rootedness. Um, and you don't, I think those extreme highs and those extreme lows, they level a bit. Um, not to say that I'm still not sometimes, sometimes hankering for that. You know, sometimes I just want to eyeballs out, just race, even if it's through the woods on my feet against my dog, you know, just to have that sort of sharp joy. I think that's so important too. But I think finding that balance and finding that way of making that happiness and that joy and more sustainable is, is where I'm edging to in, in my life. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to hear you say as part of it, you know, that you still do sometimes need to just spark out, you know, when you go in the woods with the dog. And that's something I definitely feel. I wonder if it's just innately human, this need to just press burst sometimes. And also this need for competition is like, you know, I see it in my children and they're tiny. I remember it from me as a child and it wasn't unhealthy. It was just, let's play a game. Yeah. You know, it's that difference between healthy competition, gentle, fair, fun competition and a lifestyle centered around winning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think kids, you see some kids freezing at the idea of um, a challenge or you know, pitching themselves against somebody else. And, and I think, oh, what a shame that they can't just, they can't just, you know, they've got all this pressure on them that they need to be the best at something before they even go into it. Um, so I think there is a real place for uh, for kids to win and lose. I think it, it teaches something really important, both of those things, but ultimately it not be the be all and the end all, for there to be this unconditional love and positive regard whatever the outcome of, of that stuff but we do shy away from the hard stuff don't we I think we shy away from all, all tricky things whether that's competition or if that's just being a bit cold in a hillside we are we're, we're, we crave comfort and convenience and, and and we live busy lives and and why not but I think there needs to be something, there's something in us that makes us human, that connects us to the elements in the wilder world that we only get when we do suffer that slight discomfort and, that's, and that inconvenience. And, um, and I think, especially for our children, understanding that we're not going to melt when we're out there or if we graze a knee or if we get beaten in a competition, that stuff is super important. Yeah. Because I think, I mean, I get the sense that, you know, you and I are totally on the same page with this, but the opposite of what you're talking about is not constant comfort and contentment does not mean, you know, having pizza and take away, you know, food whenever you want it and watching Netflix. It's like, are we just switching that idea of competition away from competition against others to competition against self, hmm. which doesn't necessarily mean you can't enter races, but it just means, am I performing well today compared to a year ago? am I performing as I would like to right now? Like these intrinsic goals and motivators. And, you know, you just spoke to um, suffering a little bit and like, I think suffering is quite good for people sometimes. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's well for dozens of reasons that we've discussed loads on this podcast, but these things are positives. You know, that sense of self-competition, a little bit of suffering, a little bit of trial. I think they're necessary. 
I think they are. Well, there's, I mean, I, I think the analogy of growing a muscle is a great one. You need to, you need to make it a bit uncomfortable. You need to stretch it and flex it, and actually tear some of those fibers in order for it to grow back stronger. Um, if we make all of our experiences too, uh, too clinical and. Uh, controllable and easy then when do we ever get to grow yeah so do you have you gone complete cold turkey on competing now is that game over for competitions for you or do you still go out there and race yeah no that's the interesting thing (laughs) so no I'll do one maybe two races each year and I thought when I put that heart rate monitor in the bin that would be it and here's where it gets complicated it was (laughs) that way of racing that way that we've just talked about like the blinkers on elbows out hour and a half muddy fields it's all about the end goal gone never raced like that um since this way of racing this this thing that i do now the self-supported long distance racing the joy of that is that you cannot race those sorts of races in that same way if you don't practice self-compassion and patience and uh, you can you can learn to relax and you can learn to manage your emotions and you can keep it in perspective because you're moving through huge landscapes. Um, you know, these races are 500 miles long or 3,000 miles long. You know, they're really, really long. You've got days and days and days to manage yourself and your kit and your expectations and to, you know really feel gratitude for the places that you're moving through it's a almost the opposite way of racing to the um to the you know hour and a half uh, cross-country mountain bike stuff and people say well why race at all you know are you not doing these wild places that you're talking about at a service by keeping your putting your head down and just smashing through them and honestly i i can't i can't describe to you the the uniqueness of the state that I get into when I'm in those wild places um, at times of day where I really shouldn't be. Like if I wasn't in a race, a set of race circumstances, I just wouldn't get up at four in the morning and ride in the slight rain and watch that sunrise coming up, knowing vaguely that there's other people like my people out there somewhere. They're not with me, but they're all out there somewhere having their own experience doing that same thing. There's something so simple and peaceful and valuable about being having that loose structure around this experience because it is that oh we crave comfort and convenience and we'll slide off it but put yourself in a set of circumstances where you've made a contract with the route that you're not going to deviate from you've made a contract with the people that you're in this together you know your people that yeah you're competing against but ultimately you're just a big family all journeying on the same on the same route Um, and you've made a contract with yourself I'm going to stick to this it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult, but this is what I'm doing, and I'm going to treat myself with compassion and kindness within that. But I'm going to get to the end if I possibly can. That that is that's a set of circumstances that I can't generate myself very easily. Um, so I do still love just journeying without an agenda and weaving all over the place. But there's something very specific about that being forced to 
journey through fickle weather systems and watch sunrises and sunsets and problem solve and not sit in the cafe too long, but actually get up and 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 push your body and feel that discomfort, feel that pain in the knee, and then actually, oh, it just disappears if you keep going. You know, there's it's amazing that kind of that kind of riding and racing. Yeah, and I think this is one of the most interesting things about you in this conversation is you know you didn't just go cold turkey; it wasn't over. You're not like recovering from something in that sense. I guess I'm interested in. Well, because as I understand it, you've gone out and done these races recently, like, you know, in the past few years, and you've won some of them. You've, you know, done them, you've finished loads of them. Like, are you still going out there to win? Mm. Or, and you just alluded to this, but are you still going out there to win? And or are you just going out there because somebody or a team of people have organized an event that you can now enter rather than just packing your bags and going on a three-day bike packing journey at your own pace mm. is it that structure that gives you some sort of- so yeah the, the structure is really really helpful um the community of people doing this stuff is really really helpful am i going out to win is winning still a focus what is a focus is getting round this route as quickly as i can um, and it's an amazing feeling to feel it all come together, to find the flow on the bike um, where all you're just, your kit and your equipment is working and you're handling stuff and it's difficult terrain and you're tired, but you're managing. And, and the whole time I do have this idea, this is my end point. This is where I'm aiming to, because that structure is super helpful. This is where I'm aiming to. And I'm trying to get there as quickly as I can. And but it's not about beating other people in that. It's about me making sure that I'm doing everything that I can to make myself move as efficiently as possible. And that's the feeling that I'm craving. It's this feeling that I, f- I found flow. Like I'm not, it's, it doesn't feel difficult. I know where all my stuff is and I'm, and everything's working on the bike and I'm, looking up and I'm seeing stuff and you know that those lovely moments that you get when everything just sort of comes together effortlessly that's that's what I'm craving getting into those states of of flow and that seems to happen better under time constraint than it does when I'm just out journeying Um, so as long as I'm having those experiences then I find that I um I go quite quickly and quite efficiently but I don't check I don't check where I am in a race. You never know where you are in a race. Like I never bring my, I put my phone away. I don't check track leaders. So it's like this, this app that GPS tracks your, where you are in a race. And I could, I could find phone signal. I could check that, but I'm not, I'm not interested in that. Um, I'm interested in just the, the, that, that efficiency of movement and that connection to myself and to my surroundings. And naturally I, I go fast as a result. So by proxy, you're, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're winning by accident. (laughs) Oh, no, I think that oversimplifies it. (laughs) Although that is lovely to think that. I mean, I am aware that I'm in a race. It's not like, I wouldn't have that, I wouldn't have that uh, time imperative if I wasn't racing, you know, if there weren't other people out there too. But my focus is on, on myself. Yeah. And, and, and it doesn't, it doesn't feel important. It doesn't matter that I am going to beat other people. What matters is that I'm moving efficiently. 
yeah. Winning by accident, yeah. That's, that's a nice way to put it, because you're right, there is an element of that. And as soon as you start to, you know, and I can feel myself coming out of that and thinking, oh, I wonder how well I'm doing and what other people are thinking. That's not where I want to be. It doesn't, that doesn't serve me. And so to chill out and, and, it, and it doesn't work either. So just to, to get back to the, no, that's not what this is about and focus much more on myself and my own breath and my own journey. So yeah, I think you've, you've, you've absolutely nailed that, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> it's rare that that happens. Um, <laughs> so my final question before I sort of move into the normal close of these conversations is, you know, we've talked about contentment and happiness a little bit. Are you content? Are you happy? I am. I'm struggling to answer that completely because contentment and happiness is a moment-to-moment condition, isn't it? So right now, speaking to you in this moment, um, I am fairly content and happy. I've just come off the back of a book tour, so I'm still sort of buzzing and I've got a meeting today. So that, that makes me not able to stay in a moment completely but I know that um, I'm on I'm on the right path uh, and generally so in a, in a bigger holistic sense I am content and I am happy um, and there's all and there's new stuff that's coming in to challenge me now so I don't I don't race anymore but there's new stuff always coming in to challenge this contentment and this happiness you know my body aging and um people I love getting sick and this is all stuff this will this that stuff will never go away I'm always going to have that stuff thrust at me but there's something about the way that I found to manage the stress of of racing and keep everything in perspective that I think is serving me with those new stresses those new difficulties that are coming into life and so I can only hope that I can remain to keep an eye on the bigger picture and keep striving for that contentment and that and that happiness and keep making the right decisions about how it is that I want to be in the world. Ace. Okay. Well, I always end these conversations with the same two questions. Um, and I'm often fascinated by the contrast between different people. But um, the first question is, what scares you? <gasps> oh, that is such a brilliant question. Death, excuse me, and the creep towards death, like the incremental loss of um, physicality, excuse me. Yeah. And what brings you hope? Humanity, collective effort, that energy that you can generate when you pull the right people around you and you're all striving for a common goal. Um, and that is also, ironically, what helps with the death thing. <laughs> because, again, that gives this bigger picture, the bigger perspective, and you feel so safe and held and understood when you have your people around you striving for that common goal, and that you're all in the same boat, all inching towards the same grief and the same losses and the same end. Um yeah, I think ultimately we're going to be okay. Amazing. And on that note, 
I won't say anything else. We'll just leave it there. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been so lovely to speak to you. <laughs> yeah, you too. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes. They're a big help and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience.